0: everybody welcome to episode 19 of the MTG grindcast the spikiest podcast in all of central north carolina with a special focus on the scg tour we are your hosts i'm chris castor apple and with me fresh off of i don't know if it's a third of a top eight but uh here's collins, Mullen. Hey, collins.
1: <laughs> hey how's it going
0: good good how are you
1: yeah, so I uh I just got off uh, I got back from SG Baltimore, the team event. I teamed with Todd Stevens and Jody Keith and uh we we were able to sneak in to the the top 8 at the end there. Uh it was definitely a roller coaster ride.
0: Yeah, yeah, you kind of uh, got a lot of fun for sure. Written off a little bit like right before the last round. It seemed like you guys weren't going to make
1: it in at X4. Yeah, so we we picked up our fourth loss in round I think 13 even. So after we picked up that loss, we were pretty sure that that was kind of it. That was our tournament. But we won the last two and uh, were able to sneak in. There were three X4s and two of them were able to make top eight, which was pretty surprising. But I guess that kind of makes sense because it's a team event and there are there were only like, you know, 300 teams at the event. So yeah, I think there were Um, only like 24 teams on day two or something like that. So yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think, honestly, the hardest part of those events is making Day 2, and if you can make Day 2, then even if you're X2, you're in a decent spot. You know, we went into Day 2 at X2, and then 4-2'd the following day, and still snuck into the top 8, so... It it did take a little sneaking, though, but you got there. (laughs) Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. There was actually a... One of the things that allowed us to do that was, I think the last undefeated team, I think they were like X1... Mm-hmm. at the in the last round and they had kind of like run away with it a little bit and whenever one person in a normal event like eats up all the wins then that kind of like lowers the record that's needed yeah um yeah. and then they they actually got paired down to a x3 one and decided to play it out and beat the x3 one out of the tournament which allowed us to which kind of like gave us the spot that we needed to uh to make top eight
0: yeah, were they dream crushing intentionally? Were they like doing that for anybody in particular, or what was the deal with that?
1: Yeah, so a friend of mine, Zach Kine, was on that team, oh, okay. and I was looking at the standings, and I kind of like mentioned it to him. I was like, "Hey, if you beat them, I'm pretty sure that that locks up another X four slot, and we're X 4 And so we didn't. I didn't like like specifically request that he did that, but he kind of like you know understood and was like, "All right, I think that like, we're willing to play because it's so important." to additionally be on the play and i think that if they like took a draw or something they were then it was like down to breakers on whether or not they were first or second seed Mm -hmm. i'm not entirely sure like i I never looked at the standings this is just me uh like talking to these guys so they they felt that being on the play in the top eight was immensely important and they're right because if your team is on the play all three of your matches get to be on the play in in the top eight yeah. Which huge. is insane. It that just kinda like snowballs into if one match is on the play, sure one person has an advantage, but it's not like it's like a huge advantage. But if all three of your matches have that advantage, it's 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 pretty big. So they really wanted to lock in being on the play, so they decided to play it out and uh, crush this open a slot. Yeah. Especially a big deal because one of the matches is modern and one of the matches is legacy, so <laughs> yeah. Right, right. It's funny they mentioned that though because I Honestly, out of all the formats right now, I think that the m- most important to be on the play in some in a lot of matchups is actually Standard. Because there's so many red versus teamer matchups, in that matchup in particular, it, the play is so important. Because whoever's on the play in that matchup is the beatdown. Which sounds a little funny because, you know, mono-red is like the mono-red aggressive deck. But if teamer's on the play and they have an aggressive curve with a long test cub then they are actually now on the beatdown and the red player has to kind of like find a way to you know turn turn it around a little bit with like a hazard or something but yeah that it just kind of goes to show how important being on the play was um so yeah yeah definitely true but it worked out for us so (laughs) yes
0: definitely some of these mid-range mirrors and standard though like like a, a cub can run away with the game but sometimes they're just sort of creatures bashing into each other and a little bit less important you know who's getting the first guys in play right right
1: yeah like all the two drops are so snowball-y uh like even in like the tune mirrors that
0: yeah that's true
1: you know uh, allowing yourself to be on the beat down is such a huge advantage i think that is pretty important yeah yeah
0: definitely and then take that spread over three three different matches and that's a huge advantage right
1: but yeah uh overall i teaming with todd and jody was a trip it was a lot of fun yeah Um, and it was kind of like the first time I was hanging out, like, you know, I I'd known these guys from the, like, just kind of playing on the circuit. You know, Todd goes to all the tournaments, I go to all the tournaments. Jody's more of a legacy guy, but he'll definitely, like, be around and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was kind of, like, the first time I was able to, like, hang out with them, kind of, like, outside of the context of the tournament room or whatever. Yeah. They're a blast. It was a lot of fun. Jody Jody is hilarious, and he's uh, he's he's definitely got his, like, character going on. Yes. Um, <laughs> he he does a he streams and part of his stream is uh, everybody's part of the goon squad so <laughs> we were we were the goon squad and we had our goon squad tokens and we were definitely able to get get in the feel of things there for sure
0: yeah, Jody is definitely kind of larger than life with his gold chain and his like, <laughs> play, playing lands a bit yeah. better than anybody
1: else and that sort of yeah. thing. Oh, he is a monster with lands. He just kind of gets it more than anybody else. He's been playing lands apparently since 2012, uh, like back when it like first became a deck and was like still blue and played like 49 lands or something ridiculous. And he's just been loving that deck ever since, and is pretty easily one of the best Lance players out there, I think, right now.
0: Yeah, I think it's pretty much, like, him and Jarvis, and then, you know, everybody else
1: is, like, trying to keep up. Yeah, I mean, there are a few, there are a few players, I think, in the conversation, I think, that you can't ignore Dar Ayers or David Long. Sure. Those are also both excellent lands players. But yeah, uh, the, the kind of the four of them take the cake a little bit. Jody told me he hadn't lost a lands mirror since 2012 in paper which is just a ridiculous stat (laughs) that doesn't make any Um, sense at um, all (laughs) yeah and uh until i guess this previous weekend where in in the top eight uh he lost to king but still what a what a crazy run too
0: bad though the the time to pick up your first loss in the mirror is not unfortunately shouldn't be
1: in the quarterfinals but happens. (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i mean you know Uh, King is also an excellent Lance player, so yeah, yeah, he played very Um, well. Those were fun games to watch. Uh. Yeah, yeah. When as when we got surgical, we were like, oh no, this is probably over. And then we were able to like kind of like put ourselves back in a decent position. And then Jody made an insane play of gambling for a bog to kind of like put things back at parity, except for we had our crucible. And then King drew effectively a dark depths to just like close it out because he had ghost quarter backup up for the combo, and that yeah. was kind of it. But yeah, um, it was it was a surprisingly intense game despite us getting our loam surgical on turn one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and one other game that matched, like he was super patient with the surgical because uh, I think Jody had like two cycling lands so he waited until one of the cycling lands was in the graveyard and then caught the loam with one exile effect and then in response to the cycle like ha- like he he had had the exile effect before and I think there were opportunities when maybe he could have gotten it but he waited until it was really a sure thing and doubled up on on surgicals to get the loams so mm-hmm. definitely some like really really complicated and you like being patient in this matchup means like waiting four or five turns to do something so it really tests your knowledge of the matchup it was really cool to watch. yeah the lands
1: mirror is it's just as grindy as it gets like the games go so long you rarely are able to blitz somebody out it just doesn't happen in that matchup just because everybody's got four ghost quarters four wastelands trying to combo with dark depths is just kind of impossible
0: yeah i think you you like bored most of them out right like like it's just
1: not even, yeah. Like, he even said a matchup. so. One interesting kind of thing that happened in the tournament was yeah. He he says he always boards down to one because you want one to be able to like if you if you're running away with the game or if the opportunity presents itself with a um, crop rotation then you mm-hmm. want to be able to go for it. But he said that he knew that Jarvis and Daryl had actually cut Caracas from their seventy five. So he kept in two in those matchups because you're just much much more likely to be able to if you get a twenty twenty on the table they have no way of answering it without the mm-hmm. crocus. So he kept in two in those matchups and <laughs> blitzed out Jarvis in a game two that was pretty hilarious to see. <laughs> he just kind of like put himself in a position where he just slams the twenty twenty and says go, and he, he like at that point he didn't know that Jarvis had cut the crocus. So he like he was like all right the only he's too far behind so the only way that he could win was like putting the twenty twenty on the table and hoping that Jarvis didn't have it so he, he put the twenty twenty on the table and passed the turn and Jarvis crop rotates looks through his library and gets a maze of it and we were like oh geez this game is over <laughs> because eventually we were able to find a pithing needle and pithing needle the uh, yeah the maze. To, to get the 20 damage in. But yeah, definitely, definitely a lot of crazy stuff happening with the with the lands deck.
0: And that's other cool thing, just, just one thing that you said when you, you know, we were like, this game was over. Like, it's really a team experience. Whoever's the last person to, to finish their match and your teammates are both there. Like, not that you really are needing to advise Jody Keith on many of his lands plays, but being able like, to right, do yeah. it as a group and, like, experience that, uh, that, like, fail to find a Caracas this hope this maze of it is good enough like together
1: like then you all know that you won that match like that's a really cool moment oh yeah for sure we definitely had a lot of game threes i guess match threes that we were contingent on yeah and uh and you you made a good point there was right where todd and i just never really advised jody the entire tournament because (laughs) we thought that anything that we say would just be detrimental to him doing his thing Jody was definitely kind of on his own, but he knows that deck better than anybody else. So I was definitely comfortable kind of letting him call the shots there. And kind of, like, in the same context, like, Jody couldn't really ever help me out in Standard because Jody's just not in touch with Standard as much. Uh, I actually asked my teammates, because I I played Blue-Green Pummeler over the course of the weekend. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of like this Infect-style combat tricks deck. And uh, I definitely asked Todd and Jody to... Like, if I'm, like, in the tank or something, or, like, trying to, like, figure out how to punch through, or all all this stuff, that it was very important for them not to, like, ask questions about my hand or talk about anything, because there are going to be a lot of spots where I, like, don't play my creature and pass the turn because of the implications that that gives my opponent, that I probably have, like, I want them to think that I have more protection than I do or any protection at all or a lot of other stuff yeah for like the you know if i if i like decide to sandbag like a servant in the conduit or something to you know kind of like make my opponent believe that i that i have like protection that i might not and then have the opportunity to draw into it later so and if like my teammates are being like why didn't you just play that last turn then that that can like throw off everything to my opponent mm-hmm. yeah i definitely made some like interesting lines I think in a lot of matches where had they been like asking questions or like double guessing me or whatever it would have been pretty detrimental so I had I I definitely asked them to just kind of let me do my thing a little bit and 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 try to make the bluffs work (laughs) (laughs) right
0: Right. yeah especially with that sort of deck when you're running all these dive downs and and underpowered things that need to line up exactly right you can't be can't be given away. It, you know, if you're yeah, playing like yeah. a Death Shadow Mirror where you're each thought seizing each other, then yeah, you can talk about what's the most efficient way to attack this game. But with uh, Pummeler, it's a little bit of a different story.
1: Yeah, with the with the Pummeler deck, you definitely kind of have to get in their head because you actually get a lot of equity. I think too many players play too scared against Pummeler. Like I definitely had like board states where I had a Pummeler out, but just like no way of killing them, even if I ripped the perfect card. And they would go, like, no attacks past the turn, just to, like, hold everything back or whatever. Just because they're, like, some people, like, don't exactly understand what the potential is. They just kind of, like, look at Puddler and, and view it as, like, this could kill me at any moment, no matter how many energy he has or how many cards he has in hand, which isn't really true.
0: Right, right. They think it's, like, Phage
1: the Untouchable or something. Right, right, yeah. It's, like, this, you know, this card that's going to kill him if it hits them ever. Which is a lot of the time true. Like, you know, if, if I have 6 energy and larger than life, that's just 20 damage, right? But if you, if you have, like, 10 toughness, and I only have, like, 4 energy and, and 2 cards in hand, then I'm just not going to be able to kill you, right? So you should be, you know, attacking with some flyers or putting pressure on or something. I think the best way to combat the Pummler deck is actually to put them on the back foot. Yeah, because you can't block with that deck. Right, yeah, blocking that deck is a nightmare, because, uh, it, yeah, just none of your dudes are really ever in a position where they want to be blocking. Yeah. Yeah, if you if you can, like, get a, a long test cub bigger than all of my creatures and start attacking with it, then my only out to win that game is through a gigantic pummeler and sometimes that's just not going to happen. So, but yeah, a lot of people kind of, like, put themselves in the mindset of, he's the Pummeler deck, I need to be defensive, and I think that the deck got a lot of equity out of that for sure.
0: Yeah, and I think... So, there was a, an episode of Limited Resources like a week or two ago where they were talking about bluffing and Limited. And Luis was mostly talking about how if you're going to bluff a trick, don't just bluff like Pump Spell. Think of the Pump Spell that you know you are live to have in this situation and that your opponent might put you on. And then play as though you have that specific Pump Spell. So, not like I have a... An instant, Like, I have vampire zeal. And so that means, you know, you don't just attack this 3-3 into their 4-4. You attack with the 3-3 and the 2-2 vampire because they'll both win combat against the 4-4. And I think that the mistake a lot of times that people make from the other side of the table is they just look at their pummeler opponent and you go, well, my opponent has four cards in their hand. That's just a ton of stuff. I'm probably dead to this thing. But I think you need to start thinking about what are the combinations of cards. You need to put them on cards and think about what you're dead to and what you're not dead to. Like, yeah, if they have larger than life, larger than life, blossoming defense and some energy, like nothing, no choices you make are going to beat that. So you just need to kill them before they, you know, assume they don't have it and then kill them before they assemble that combo. But... You know, if they have a specific amount of energy and you think they might have one larger than life, and you can leave back this amount of toughness of creatures so you don't quite go to zero, then you have to, you can consider that. But it, you know, it doesn't make sense not to attack with creatures if they have enough energy to put their pummeler at like
1: a 32 32 or something like that. Right. Yeah. If I do have enough energy to put my guy at, a, at, at like a 80 80 or whatever it could be you're doing yourself a huge disservice by holding creatures back honestly because if you you know if you can't beat like you know protection spell plus pump spell into all of my energy then you shouldn't be holding creatures back to try to block it <laughs> you know right. what I mean So yeah I think that you make a good point in that you, you can probably figure out what your opponent is capable of and playing accordingly. yeah I
0: think that's pretty important and it's a skill that is often less important and constructed at least when it comes to like combat decisions. But playing these matchups, I think you, you end up seeing just how important, like, putting them on specific combinations of cards can be. And, and don't just think, like, this thing is going to be so
1: big, like, how big can it get and what does that mean? Right. And how you can kind of, like, inform your, your other decisions based on figuring out that information. Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
0: Um, so how did you end up on Pummeler for the weekend? Was that... You know, how did you convince Jody and and Todd to let you play (laughs) Pummeler?
1: Well, I I didn't really have to convince them. They trusted me to figure out what I felt was the best option for our standard. Sure. And uh, I definitely started off the week playing a bunch of teamer. Because I was like, all right, playing a teamer event, it's probably hard to go wrong with just the best deck. Mm -hmm. So I played... Teamer a bunch online in the week leading up to it, like you know Tuesday, Wednesday, and then I I started looking more into the pummeler deck because I saw I saw some results from it, and it had just top aided the Grand Prix in I, I can't remember which Grand Prix it top aided, but it top aided one of them. And and I played against it a couple online as teamer and felt like the matchup was just excellent for Pummler. You know, I had game, but I like the matches that I played didn't feel particularly close. Just because if they ever had Pummler protection pump spell, then the teamer deck just is only ever really going to have one interactive piece. So if if you can fight through that interactive piece, and then you're just you're pretty much just dead. Right. So I decided to play it through a couple of leagues. So I picked up all the Pummeler cards and jammed with it, and it just felt really, really strong. Like the teamer matchup was really, really good. I, f- I felt like, and it it still had an excellent proactive game plan against kind of everything else in the format. the The one deck that was kind of traditionally troublesome for the Pummeler deck was actually Mono Red, mm-hmm. but this blue green Pummeler deck had an excellent excellent sideboard plan of boarding into Cartouche of Ambition, which is the black cartouche that gives something minus one minus one and gets, gives your guy a life link. Mm-hmm. So if you can ever just like suit up like a bristling Hydra or something with that, then it's pretty much just game over. Uh, the other card that made the red matchup really good post board was the Elephant. Um,
0: oh, Green Belt Rampager.
1: Yeah, the the one mana three four Rampager. Sure, you board that in against red and against control. Just because you want to be able to be on the board as quickly as possible, the card mm. isn't like inherently good. I think against like Teemer or other things, you'd rather be on just kind of your Pummeler plan against them. Okay. But being able to like have a huge board presence on the on the board as like as as soon as you can with like a four toughness creature against red is just really really good. So you can actually just get a bunch of wins by like uh, turn two three four they can't answer it and then put a Cartouche of Ambition on it and start attacking with for four lifelink. And that made the red matchup really good. Gotcha. And that's, that was kind of like one of the matchups that I thought that was going to be kind of a problem for the deck. So I felt like just across the board in the format, there were so many really strong matchups for Pummeler. And that's kind of like why I decided to play it for the weekend, because I, I was just feeling really, really confident about it. And Uh, I think a lot of other people kind of came to the same conclusion. I think I saw a bunch of other Pummler decks in day two of the team event. I played the mirror a couple times, which was interesting. Is that just a race? There's not... I mean, I guess
0: cartouche is pretty sweet in the mirror if you can catch a Pummler with it. I don't know if that was actually your plan ever.
1: Uh, Yeah, it's funny that you immediately mentioned that because that was actually tech that I had in the mirror that a lot of other people didn't have. I played the mirror twice... And both times I brought in the cartouches, and they never brought in their cartouches. Mm. You know, you actually bore down on protection spells in the mirror, just because there aren't any interactive pieces, yeah. or so people think. But yeah, I definitely... People were just, like, slamming pummelers against me, and I would be like, all right, put a minus one minus one counter on it. And they were like, oh, okay, I can't pump past this, because my dice is going to die in my upkeep. So, yeah, that was, that was pretty good tech.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really sweet. I wonder... So that's an interesting kind of dance that's going on with the red decks, because, you know, something like Greenbelt Rampager would have been bad against older iterations of the red decks that are running Oncrop Crasher, because that's exactly the kind of card that's terrible against Oncrop Crasher builds. But they sort of replaced that with Rampaging Ferocidons, which would make the cartouches bad but they may be boarding out of their ferocidons since it's not particularly great against like your main deck is that what you have kind of seen
1: people board against you or or what's going on there to make the cartouches good i wouldn't be surprised to see people boarding out the ferocidons but i think that you should probably keep them in just because it works really well against the lifelink from cartouche of ambition the, uh, that card's pretty problematic if it's just kind of sitting on the table and I'm leaning really hard on my lifelink guy, kind mm-hmm. of like keeping me alive. But, you know, if, 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 if the red player is unaware of that sideboard card, then I think boarding out is pretty realistic because, you know, I'm only ever playing a couple of creatures, right? And uh, nothing else in my deck gives lifelink, so the card's not really doing exactly what you want it to, I wouldn't think. But yeah, them, them having that card in the main deck is definitely much better. Yeah. For us. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's not doing much in the the
0: pre-board games, but I I think, yeah, definitely, if you're playing Red, be aware of that cartouche tech, and, uh, you know, don't let that get past you. Uh, So how did it feel over the weekend? Did it, you know, perform the way you wanted it to? Uh,
1: Yes and no. Um, I think that the... Because... The deck suffered from some problems that decks like this suffer from in de- in formats that don't have any cantrips, where mm. you have to draw kind of three pieces in order to to do exactly what you want to do, you know? Yeah. yeah. You need to draw your creature, your pump spell, and your protection spell. Or sometimes it's just, you need to draw your creatures, your pump spells, and your lands in the right mixture, Right. And you mm-hmm. don't really have any control over what your deck decides to give you. <laughs> so, so sometimes I ran into some problems where, especially on camera, I thought that uh, I flooded out a bunch on camera, and you know, and I got to the point where like I needed to draw a creature, and I just kept on drawing pump spells. So that just kind of like reduced the consistency a lot. So there are definitely a lot of games where I lost where I'm like. Drawing lands and pump spells, which is, like, a good percentage of my deck, so I'm likely to do that. But I just, like, need to find that one creature so that I can close out the game with it. But, uh, like, just wouldn't come in time. I
0: wonder if there's room in the deck for a couple of charted course. I know the the cantrips in standard
1: aren't actually good, but charted course is a possibility, I guess. Two mana Yeah, I mean, you know, worth considering. I think that anything to kind of, like, reduce that variance would be pretty helpful. And then the other thing that I saw was that the teamer matchup's really good, but I still lost to teamer, like, three times over the weekend. Right. Like, the the matchup isn't, like, the the 75%er that I hoped it would be. It's more like a 60%er, maybe. And I just think that, you know, if you're playing a deck because of its good teamer matchup, and I ran into this problem last weekend as well in Atlanta, where I played a deck because I thought that my teamer matchup was really good and then lost to it anyways. So I think that... For Invitational, I'm definitely just going to play teamer, which is unfortunate. You know, I always kind of want to be the guy who's playing the next level deck or whatever, but <laughs> I think that this is an instance where the best deck is just too good. Like, it's it's too resilient to any form of hate that you might want to throw at it. And it, you know, it's still going to have game against this Pumler deck, and the Pumler deck might stumble, and you can win games that way. So I I was pretty happy with like the the metagame choice of Hummler. I think that it was very very strong, and I think that uh, you know I saw a lot of like excellent like other good players playing it. So kind mm-hmm. of felt validated on the choice there. But kind of out, after playing it at that event, I think that right now in standard you should just be playing Teamer. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, we're we're definitely yeah. in a a jund standard right now. Is is yeah, I think where we're at. Teamer is just too strong. I think that it's it's got too many ways to fight what people are trying to throw at it. I <laughs> I have personally tried over and over and over again to be this teamer deck in this format. And every single time have failed to come out with a deck that just crushed it like I wanted it to. Yep. Like I played I played tokens at nationals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I played Esper tokens. Lost teamer a bunch. I played this uh, blue-white cycling control deck. Lost a teamer a bunch, and now I played (laughs) pummeler and lost a teamer. So I think that come invitational time, I I think that's probably just kind of like all right, you know, I gave it the best shot I could, and it's time to just sit back and and play play what the best deck is.
0: Yeah, yeah, the deck is just so adaptable. We've (laughs) definitely multiple times run into just this. You know, it's possible to build a deck that's relatively strongly favored game one. But because there's so many sideboard options for the deck, either their negate plan is good enough to make the matchup a positive one, or once your deck becomes known, like in the case of the tokens deck, and people are just running a couple of you know a sideboard plan that works against it, then all of a sudden your deck is no longer favored against Teamer anymore.
1: So right. yep, right, it's trouble. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with standard at the moment. I'm gonna be working with Dylan and the rest of the team on. Kind of like figuring out a good teamer list for the Invitational, and I think we're just gonna rock that. Yep.
0: Are you feeling four color or four glory bringers? What are where are we uh, in
1: right now? <laughs> I think three colors where you want to be. Yeah. Um. Personally, I think that it's definitely close between the four color decks and the straight teamer decks because for every game that the four color deck wins because it has access to. Scarab God, it's gonna lose because it's mana was a little too clunky. Um, So I think that it's actually kind of a wash. And I think,
0: this may... I may be making this up, but what it kind of seems to me is it's like a psychological thing because you remember the games you won to Scarab God or you won because of yeah. Scarab God because you yeah. crushed them with it. You don't remember the games that you were relying on your Ether Hub to make two colors of your mana for a little bit too long, so you couldn't pump out enough Thopters and your opponent killed you with a Glory Bringer. Like that's not right, memorable. Right. That just feels like a regular game. So I I, I think you know Vraska is real good. But I think at the end of the day, it's, it's, it balances out and you really would rather only be three colors against the more aggressive decks in the format. So,
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that having access to Vraska was very important when a lot of people were playing these tokens decks. Mm-hmm. But people have kind of given up on that. And I think that that's a good enough reason to go back to the teamer deck. Because like, the idea behind the four-color deck is that it has a more powerful late game. But the, the straight teamer deck post board its late game is just as powerful as anybody else's. Uh, I think that you like you're not giving the confiscation coups or the viziers or the like the boats in some of these decks enough credit. I think that you know those you can still play very very powerful five drops to have that late game.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely the the difference between a glory bringer and a scarab god is not that vast and the glory bringer comes online much more quickly than the scarab god comes online
1: yeah i think that's kind of where i'm at as like the the three color I, i'm fairly confident is where i'm going to end up i don't really want to mess around with getting too fancy with it although to be clear i'm i'm going to try to get pretty fancy with it in terms of the the mirror match sideboard text, but <laughs> yeah <laughs> we'll yeah. see where it goes
0: I know yeah. everybody's kind of on, like, two Rivers rebuke now, or at least one Rivers rebuke, and then going up on Viziers a little bit. Chandra's defeat is good, but I wonder what else is out there as a, a possibility for for that Mirror match. I, I, I think a lot has been explored so far, but there's got to be something out there, right?
1: Uh, yeah, I think, honestly, a lot of people are sleeping a little bit on the gear Hulk plan out of okay. the Teamer sideboard. That's legit. I think that the, you know, you you want your top end to be trumping everybody else's top end. Mm-hmm. So when your top end is like a 5-6 a that answers their top end, then that's kind of where you want to be. So at least that's where I'm at.
0: Yeah, and that's real nice because that, that lets you draw one Chandra's Defeat and then you know drawing sometimes the second one is dead sometimes it's the best card you could possibly draw but if your second chandra's defeat was actually a torrential gear hulk then that gives you the option of chandra's Mm -hmm. defeating or whatever else you've got in your
1: graveyard so that's pretty cool sure so yeah that's that's gonna be my project for the next couple weeks is buckling down on figuring out exactly what my teamer list wants to look like but sure but yeah
0: standard
1: yeah standard um,
0: we have talked about Standard <laughs> quite a bit over the past several episodes, so I feel like our audience may be a little bit hungry for some modern content. So uh, modern. We that's, Yeah, because that's part <laughs> of the Invitational, too.
1: Oh, yeah. Very excited about modern. Um, yeah, it's been a little while. Feeling pretty good about humans. Despite, I think, what a lot of people are thinking right now in the metagame, uh, and we can talk a little bit about that metagame shift
0: yeah. Despite what I'm thinking about right now, in the in the show notes that I've I've written down and sent to you, actually,
1: <laughs> uh, indeed, yeah, the uh, yeah, a lot of people are talking about how Jeskai Control has kind of risen up to to take that kind of like first slot on MTG Goldfish metagame.
0: Yeah. Geez, it is number one now, huh?
1: That's that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, Jeskai is number one. I think there are a lot of reasons for that, and I think pretty much all those reasons come from this Five Color Humans deck becoming more popular. Five Color Humans came into the format when Storm and Eldrazi Tron were two decks that were kind of dominating everything. Mm-hmm. And the Jeskai deck existed, but had a rough time against Eldrazi Tron in particular, I think, and had like a decent matchup against Storm. It wasn't insane, but it wasn't... It wasn't bad either. You had a lot of game against them. So the Five Color Humans deck came in and started beating up specifically on Storm and Eldrazi Tron and actually pushed Eldrazi Tron like way down in the metagame. So not only did Five Color Humans itself kind of pop into the metagame and give Jeskai a excellent matchup because mm-hmm. Jeskai beats up on humans pretty well, but humans also did the job of pushing out Jeskai's bad matchup So I think that really, really opened up the door for a lot of Jeskai decks to have success recently in in Modern.
0: Yeah, and we've seen a lot of different iterations of these Jeskai decks. Like some of them are closer to that, you know, John Rossom's style with Geists and Spell Quellers, but especially in the Open this weekend, uh, two of the Jeskai decks in the top eight were much, much more controlling. They were not tempo decks. They were legitimate
1: modern control decks going as far as playing like Torrential Gearhulk. The, the ones that are playing Transiglear Hulk I think, are are pretty awesome. The so the two ends of the spectrum are actually kind of defined by Jonathan Rossom's like super tempo-y style of control deck with Geist of St. Traft and their and spell quellers and really trying to get your opponent dead. He had success in the Modern Classic. I think he made top eight of that. And then it's funny how the the other side of the spectrum is actually defined by Ben Nikolic's super super controlling version of Jeskai with Trintel Gear Gearhulk and Sphinx's Revelation that we actually see in the top eight of the constructed open.
0: Yeah, and and Ali Antrazi played a a similar deck though did not quite get up to Sphinx's Revelation.
1: Right, right. Yeah, he also had the Gearhulks, but he right he I don't think he was running any any Revelations. So, but yeah, I think that like either either version of these is pretty strong against kind of the field i think they, they're both running what they need to run in order to have success against the humans decks just like a bunch of different types of removal spells in order to kind of like uh, duck and weave around meddling mage and cell uh, freebooter and stuff like that you, 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 they just do an excellent job of kind of tearing tearing those decks apart i, I think
0: definitely this is in a big way a response to the humans decks because you don't really you know you don't need to lean on you know, attacking with spell quellers and geys to end the game quickly against humans. When you have this many removal spells, you're you know you're just going to be legitimately winning the game, and it doesn't really matter what uh, you you deal the twenty damage with. I, I think part of it is also that if you just say like, well, I'm these guys aren't really good enough to let me beat Tron anyways, so they're kind of giving up on that sort of matchup um, and just running all removal and and a couple of win conditions and and just crushing the creature decks like like this is a deck in modern that is winning with two electrolyzed three lightning bolt three lightning helix four path to exiles three or four supreme verdicts like that's so many removal spells just even beyond humans just shows you how important creatures must be to
1: modern if this kind of deck can be successful yeah i mean i definitely think that the modern to a large extent is a is a creature format right now. We see yeah. a lot of creature oriented decks doing really well with like uh, counters company and humans and even things like affinity. you know these are all fundamentally creature decks, so this Jess guy control deck is kind of always going to be surging into prominence whenever creature decks are pretty prevalent in modern, and I think that's definitely where we're at right now,
0: yeah. And hopefully the storm decks are put on the back foot when you murder their creatures, so.
1: Yes, yeah, even the combo deck is like leaning really hard on, on you know, having a creature resolve and, you know, and live while they're comboing out.
0: That is one matchup where I would prefer to have a removal spell and then a Geist and then a counter spell rather than removal spell, removal spell, counter spell, eventually kill you with a, a Planeswalker or a Torrential gear hulk. But I, I wonder if there's just enough controlling elements and counter spells in this deck to get there against storm that definitely seems like the matchup that's a little bit hurt by transitioning to this slower form that wins with celestial
1: colonnades more often than than geists yeah for sure I think that they they definitely have like good cyber plans for that matchup it's it's important for decks like these to have a lot of access to cards that answer goblins because a lot of like the the storm's way to punch through a lot of these like super controlling hate heavy decks is with just like making a bunch of goblins and hoping that gets there but this uh these these control decks i think are are pretty resilient with you know out of the sideboard i'm just looking at like engineered explosives is it static casters verdicts that are already in the main for these more controlling versions
0: yeah even actual rule of law in antrazi's
1: list so that's oh yeah nice you know and and the sword decks have like have access to cards that could answer those like um Echoing Truth or Wipe Away or stuff like that, but definitely, definitely tough for them to to fight through all of the all the disruption and those cards for sure.
0: Yeah, and also beyond just a format shift, I think one thing that has led to these decks being pretty good is the printing of Search for Azcanta. Ali's got three in his main deck. Nikolaj has uh, two in his. They mean that where the the tempo deck is putting Geist into play on turn three. And then just needs to stop you from doing stuff until that geist kills you. This is a, a kind of similar idea where you put the search for Escanta and play on turn two. You're getting incremental advantage while you're trading your cards for theirs. Eventually it flips, puts you up a mana, draws you a couple of cards, and that's a sim- You know that's a level of inevitability. You're just slowly getting ahead as the game goes on because of this two mana spell, and that lets you have that. You know that that's actually a pretty assertive plan that is at least related to that putting a Geist into play and riding that to the win. More controlling, certainly, but you're under a lot of pressure when they have Search for Azkanto in play, just like you're under a lot of pressure when they have a Geist in play.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like, in, in a lot of ways, it's your win con. <laughs> it just kind of like allows you to bury your opponent in an advantage in the late game and smooth out your draws up until then. Yeah, I think that, I think that you're right in comparing it to Geist a little bit.
0: I, I'd be interested in seeing... You know, if this kind of slower deck, slower blue-white-red deck becomes a thing, then I'm wondering if some sort of, you know, like, like land destruction probably becomes more powerful because this deck needs to be able to cast its powerful spells. It relies on having a lot of mana so that it can, you know, eventually kill you with Celestial Colonnade while holding Cryptic Command up and that sort of thing. And it has legitimate lands that they don't want to die, like Celestial Colonnade or Flip Search for Azkanta. So ghost quarter decks or fulminator mage decks or things like that uh, gain a little bit of power there, um, and of course Tron just gains a lot of power by these decks taking up a, a big portion of the metagame. So,
1: right for sure. So it'd be interesting to see kind of like how long Jeskai can hold like hold on to the metagame in that context while before people kind of like you know start a game against them and uh, notice that they're kind of like the top dog and people are might play more Tron or more Eldrazi Tron or whatever you want to see to kind of combat that a little bit. Modern's very cyclical. Modern reacts pretty heavily a lot of the time. So uh, we'll see if it changes at all come the Invitational or if it's, you know, if this is just kind of like a snapshot of what we're going to see at the Invitational.
0: Yep. One other little thing that I've been noticing is people trimming on or almost completely eliminating their graveyard hate. Oh yeah, that's definitely worth talking about. That's happening in force now. Like looking at specifically these Jeskai controlled lists, like one of the things that draws me to blue-white control decks in modern in the first place is you can just run a lot of rest in pieces. Uh, And these guys were not interested in doing that this weekend. So I think correctly for this weekend. But it definitely leaves a hole in the metagame for decks that are abusing the graveyard to to come out and do something.
1: yeah I mean I think that you're 100 percent right. dredge is a deck that like it was very unpopular recently uh, for whatever reason mm-hmm. and I think that in like a lot of if you look at a lot of the top deck lists from this previous weekend they were all pretty much d- devoid of graveyard hate like if you look at Dylan's death shadow list there aren't there isn't a single graveyard hate piece in the 75 you know and like uh, traditionally in in death shadow you had like some spell bombs or whatever to not only fight like the dredge decks but also like the mirror but you know dylan's read was that there just like weren't going to be a lot of those this weekend and i think Mm -hmm. that he was 100 percent right yep
0: and it only takes a week or two for it then to be right to just start playing the graveyard decks
1: yeah yeah we'll see if people kind of like Recognize that that's kind of like a hole in the plan and put in graveyard hate now, or we'll see if Dredge just kind of like runs away with it. Dredge is definitely on my radar a little bit for the Invitational. Mm -hmm. I think that humans definitely has a big target on its back, and as much as I think that that is insane, I think that you know it's definitely not beyond me to shift gears and just take advantage of people. Not running any graveyard hate and just and just kind of crushing it with dredge because the dredge versus Jeskai control matchup is hilarious and uh, it's just, it just does never really ends well for for the control deck.
0: <laughs> right, you're spending zero cards as they are like frantically trying to Supreme Verdict every single turn. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can only path so many things before the rest of them run you over by attacking every turn.
0: Right. Oh, well, sometimes. They get really gross detention spheres. But I think these these Jeskai stylists uh, don't run that card because they have better removal available to them, so you don't need to worry about that as much.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, definitely something that I'm going to be considering, and I'm going to be keeping an eye on how much graveyard hate continues to show up in the winning deck lists in Modern for the next two weeks, just kind mm-hmm. of through, like, 5-0s or uh, whatever events happen to be in the next couple of weeks. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to be able to... Just, you know, run back humans just because it's the deck is so good. But, you know, if if the trend of Jeskai continues to do that, I think that you know, I have a lot of experience with dredge decks. Um I'm definitely not afraid to, to, to crack that one out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, both of these decks have, have served you pretty well in the past, so hopefully one or the <laughs> yeah. other will be yeah, a, I the, mean, a good you know, choice. The
1: the invitational that I top it, I played dredge and modern. So yeah. yeah, could be fun to could be fun to do that again for sure.
0: Yeah, it's kind of crazy the way the metagame is now. Like five, and and not that the goldfish metagame is one hundred percent representative of what people are actually playing, but yeah. you know the emergence of five color humans now that's the number three deck. The two decks in front of it are gift storm, which was the most popular deck, and humans totally preys on, and Jeskai, which has emerged to prey on five color humans as a big part of its metagame shift. So that you know there's this. The top three decks are just this huge rock paper scissors sort of thing. Um, I guess Jeskai is is decent against Storm, but but that relationship is just kind of funny to have seen emerge. But yeah, I think you may be best served by going a little bit outside of that and figuring out you know a way to have decent percentage against all of these decks.
1: Yeah, and you know while while that's true, I think it's also very important to note that it's still modern. Right, so, right. Metagaming in modern is pretty difficult, just because and and often incorrect, honestly. Because you know, although we see a kind of like surge of Jeskai recently, it's still only seven percent of the metagame. Yes, and <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, so you know, we're talking about like Jeskai number one deck, or whatever, but this isn't standard where number one deck is forty percent of the metagame. We're talking about modern which is seven percent of the metagame so if you're and this is partly why i'm fairly confident that i'm just going to run humans again is because you know sure Jess guys numbers are higher than normal but higher than normal and modern still is you might play against it once or twice a tournament
0: yep that's true
1: i was talking to dylan and he was like yeah i played against uh eight different modern decks on <laughs> um, on day one of the of the tournament and i was yep. like yeah i mean you know it's modern so while paying attention to these things, I think that the the more important thing to recognize when you are trying to meta modern mm-hmm. is doing something like identifying when dredge is good. Yeah. Because that's something that's going to be true no matter what deck you play against. The like the lack of graveyard hate is something that is like something that like a phenomenon that happens over the course of all players, no matter what deck they're playing, they can look at a metagame and say there isn't any dredge. I won't have any uh, sideboard hate. So those are like real percentages. Yeah. If
0: everybody is shaving a rest in peace or so cutting them entirely, and everybody's doing some of that to their deck, then yeah, that's the kind of metagaming that that you can really do. That yeah. will have an effect on every match that you play for sure. I, I agree completely.
1: Yes, and that's so. That's part of why I'm just like I'm not really afraid to play humans at the Invitational. You know, if if I if I think that Dredge is just going to be so excellent that weekend, then I'm 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 going to play it. Mm -hmm. But even if Jeskai continues to be the number one deck, I'm I'm not really that afraid to run humans in that field because, you know, sure I'll play Jeskai once, but it's still modern. I'm going to play against a bunch of other stuff that I think humans is is excellent against. So,
0: yep. um, And the other kind of deck. That tends to be my go-to, like like, like the two things that I check for people are shaving are, are they shaving their graveyard hate? And then are they shaving their artifact hate in their sideboards? Um, and those right. yeah. th- those are two huge guides to play Dredge this weekend or play Affinity this weekend. Um, and I think yeah. there is some level of shaving going on. And even though Jeskai is not a great matchup for Affinity because Electrolyze is the most brutal thing in the world, Affinity might also be a pretty decent choice for this weekend. The caveat to that is that this is modern, and by that, uh, I'm not talking about, like, oh, each deck is a small percentage of the meta. I'm talking about, like, card ownership and experience with decks, and the people who have been playing Affinity for, you know, the entirety of Modern are much, much better with Affinity than most people who just pick it up, because Affinity is extraordinarily difficult to play. So that's a tough deck to recommend. Like, this is a good deck for this weekend. Why don't you try picking it up? Uh, right. I don't know if I could recommend that to anybody.
1: <laughs> yeah, and honestly, the same is true for, I think, pretty much every deck in Modern. Experience with the deck is is probably the number one deciding factor of, of what you should play, I think, in Modern. Yeah. Like, so if, yeah, I think that you, you made a good point in that if you have experience with Affinity but are playing something else right now, it might be worth considering Affinity again. Or if you have experience with Dredge but you're playing something else right now, then it's probably a good spot to be playing Dredge. But if you if you don't have any experience with either of those two decks, mm-hmm. I think that kind of like dropping what you know and picking one of those up because you think it might be good this particular weekend is, is just going to do yourself a huge disservice in the long term. I think play what you know is is just kind of the, the number one thing in modern whenever you're playing in any tournament.
0: And I wonder if that means, you know, I, I want to... I'm trying to figure out what is kind of the best way to philosophically approach some of these formats, not just from a tournament by tournament basis, but as sort of a longer term approach. So I'm wondering if that means that it would be profitable and fruitful to sort of Pick a couple of decks that are consistently powerful and at, like, diametrically opposed ends of the spectrum so that whatever you identify as good that weekend, like, one of your three decks is likely to be good just because that experience is so important. Like, you know, I'm just trying to think if, you know, what's what's the best way to be a good modern player? And I'm wondering if this is one of those ways.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, if, uh, if, if you're approaching it like that, I think that, say... Say you're a modern player, and you wanted to just start out now, and you you wanted to approach it with that knowledge of, I want to have three decks that I can play very, very well, you know, which three should they be? And honestly, I think that, like, you know, if you see some rock-paper-scissors dynamics in modern, then, you know, playing those three decks would be probably a good choice. So Mm -hmm. say, let's say you wanted to play, like, those three options could be, like, Jeskai Control, Five Color Humans, Eldrazi Tron. Mm-hmm. right because those are kind of like the three rock paper scissors pieces in modern right now and they all kind of like prey on particular things happening in in the format like you know tron preys on controlly decks and A decks prey on the creature decks and then humans prey on combo decks and stuff like that so they all kind of like have their shapes of modern where they fit in well mm-hmm. yep so they, i think that that would be an interesting point but probably very very difficult to to kind of pull off i guess
0: Right, and especially if we're approaching it from like I'm gonna start playing modern, it's really difficult. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna if, buy three yeah. nine
1: hundred dollar decks right now. That's yeah. If if you the listener is is just starting to play modern, then you know probably not worth thinking about things in that in that depth. You probably just want to develop an understanding of the format before anything else. But it it is still like
0: a matter of investing resources. Like I've played quite a bit of modern, but. There are a lot of weekends where the decks that I am able to put together or the decks that I'm able to play competently, there isn't one that I can pick from that I think, okay, I can play this deck well, and I think it's a good choice for this weekend. So I think that going forward, I may want to try to set myself up in such a way that one of the decks that I'm competent with is likely to be a deck that I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is the right one to play this weekend. So, or a right right one to play this weekend.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a smart way to approach familiarizing yourself with particular decks in modern. Is that you know you you don't want to play like if you, like if you're gonna play three different decks, you don't want to play three different decks that are all good or bad kind of together on the rotating wheel. You want to play things that are at adjacent you know points of that of yeah. That rotation. Yeah, for sure. Definitely an interesting uh, interesting dynamic there.
0: Yeah. And the Invitational isn't for another two weeks, so next week I think we'll probably have some more specifics about what seems to be working and what seems to not be working. I don't know if we want to talk any more about Modern. I kind of wanted to talk about the Hollow
1: One decks for just a minute because they're really sweet, and I wouldn't want anyone to not be aware <laughs> of them. Yeah, definitely. Steve Rubin <laughs> has been championing that deck for a while, and he's he's definitely somebody who you wanna you want to pay attention to.
0: Yeah, and these are just pretty much what you would guess lots of faithless looting and faithless looting analogs hollow ones street wraiths I, I think the recent iteration has been to move away from vengevines and just play straight black red so with the flame blade adept from Amonket, the the one two menace that gets plus one plus zero oh, when you discard a card um even go so far as to play like burning inquiry which gives your flame blade adepts plus three plus O because he, he, each player draws and discards three cards at random. So it can have some crazy starts with hollow ones and stuff. And one of the things that I've really liked about it is you can board into surprisingly powerful removal. Like playing humans, I played against it a couple of times and sometimes they just put a hollow one out on turn one. Turn two, they lightning axe discarding fiery temper and, and kill two of your guys and then they just beat you up. Against Eldrazi Tron, yeah. they have access to Big Game Hunter, which is incredibly powerful. Because <laughs> they're actually getting the the madness off of it, too. Like, sometime, at, at some point, people were sideboarding that card without being able to madness it. So this deck is really sweet. I don't know that it'll ever be quite the right choice, but it's something to be aware of and think about. It's also real cheap. So if you're getting into modern, you know, give it some consideration.
1: Yeah, and I think that it definitely fits to, like, one of the criteria of... of uh, something that a, a top-tier modern deck probably should have, and that's a very powerful, proactive game plan. Yep. You know, the, the things that they're doing are pretty inherently just kind of busted, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that if you're, if you're attacking modern with that philosophy, then it's hard to go wrong. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: So it's probably enough about modern for this week, and we'll just be as specific as we can next week once we've put in some real... Hands-on work on the format, but yeah. we've got a couple of rivals of Ixalan spoilers now. Not a lot, but I think enough to talk I think about. Enough for to sure. talk about.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the first one that I saw was actually a spoiler of a reprint, which I was I thought was pretty cool to see, and that was Silvergill Adept. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I don't know how much implications that has for Standard. It's pretty hard to have a tribal deck, I think, in Standard. But Silvergill Adept is definitely one of the stronger merfolks you know outside of the lords themselves to be printed in in modern we'll see we'll see what kind of impact that has on standard if i had to guess i think that it's just going to be a high pick for the merfolk deck in limited and not really (laughs) see anything beyond that but definitely cool to see that they're you know reprinting some of those uh key merfolk cards yeah i i'm afraid you're
0: probably right especially because it's in standard with Murfolk Branchwalker, which I mean, on the one hand, means that the deck has two powerful two drops that have been good enough to be in a Murfolk deck in Modern and top eight and open a couple of opens in a row. But on the other hand, I think that means that if we're getting both of these in Standard, they're not—they're probably not printing any real lords that are super competitive. So you'll have to make do with like Metallic Mimic, and that may just not be good enough. Yeah, Adept is cool to see, and we'll see what comes out of it. But I am not crossing my fingers for this actually working in standard because it would it it feels like it would have been a mistake if they
1: put it in there and then it ended up being really really good you know right right for sure yeah and then uh and then kind of the next card was i'm not sure how to pronounce this one uh (laughs) i think i know which one you're
0: talking about yeah
1: the giant (laughs) giant dinosaur you know just a casual 12 12 trample you know no big deal or anything (laughs) right costs x Uh, less to cast where x is the total power of creatures you control
0: i mean this is pretty sweet
1: it's it's definitely sweet unfortunately from like a competitive standpoint this is in my opinion the definition of a win more card yeah it's it's gonna be too hard to cast unless you already have a pretty dominant board position and then you're making your board position even more dominant like i think that you know it could probably be an excellent stall breaker in limited so i think that it's Depending on how board stoly the format becomes in limited, I think that you know, this might be a, a high pick mm-hmm. for for something that's just gonna be able to bust through some some decks. But other than that, I think it, at least in like standard or anything, it's just it's just not gonna be there. Yeah. It is a nice it, it does
0: have a nice magical Christmas line flavor with Regisor Alpha. You know, if you make Regisor Alpha and untap and they didn't remove any of your stuff, then that knocks
1: seven man off the cost of this thing and gives it haste, but true, true. Can you can you curve directly into this from Registrar Alpha? Is it's well seven, so then this is so this costs five, five after minute? it, yeah. So you don't so need yeah. to make the land drop, but um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if uh, but at the same point, you know, you've just resolved and untapped with the Registrar Alpha, so right. Do you really so any need dinosaur, big thing, right? Any dinosaur you cast is insane here. So yeah, definitely in my mind, kind of like the definition of a win more card. But yep. um, maybe maybe it's just going to be cheap enough, often enough that it's worth. I don't know. We'll see.
0: So another possibly win more card, but really cool is Storm of the Vault. So this is two a blue and a red for a legendary enchantment. This is one of the flip lands. Whenever one or more creatures you control deals combat damage to a player, you get a treasure. Um, so you can only get up to one per turn. And then at the beginning of your un- end step, if you control five or more artifacts, you transform it and it becomes uh, basically Telerian Academy.
1: I think that this card will see probably just as much play as the Gaia's Cradle. Yeah. And that is to say pretty much no play. <laughs> <Unfortunately>. <laughs> I, think, I think you're right,
0: but it does slot pretty handily into a Thopter deck. So that's one place where I could see it because the Thopter deck has plenty of flyers to hit it, hit them with to get treasures, plenty of artifacts to help flip it early, and then you can actually use the mana if you're using, you know, what's it called, the the artifact that bounces your guys and lets you replay them and stuff. So this is, it's not a you know complete impossibility, but one of the things that I'm kind of a lot of these cards are a little bit underpowered. So they probably won't get their time in the sun until uh, Amaket and Kaladesh rotate out. And this card really would rely on Kaladesh cards to be good, I think. So
1: that's probably yeah. a little bit self-defeating here. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I, um, I've i played a little bit with the tokens deck, and it felt like I just didn't really ever have any use for a bunch of mana. Hmm. If you can get to the point where you can like bounce and replay Maverick Thopterist a bunch, yeah. then sure, Like having that mana is pretty good. But if you're in a board position where you're able to do that, then you're probably winning anyways. Um, so yeah, I think that this to me looks like another win more card. You're you're probably right. Uh, but this next one is something that I can probably get behind a little bit. Okay, <laughs> just because right. it's it's sweet mechanically, <laughs> and I like I don't know how it's gonna play out. Like I have no heuristics to kind of fall upon. Yeah. Um, yeah. This guy is Tetsumok Death primordial um <laughs> i think is what that translates to i think the we've, we did, we actually have the english translation which is just tetsumak primal death so primal death okay yes. yeah so this guy's a six six for six death touch legendary elder dinosaur <laughs> um and he has a sweet ability where you can pay black and reveal it from your hand to put a prey counter on target creature and you can only activate this during your turn uh, and then when he comes into when he enters the battlefield, you can destroy all creatures with a prey counter on them. So if you've like got this guy in your opener, you can kind of filter into your curve a couple of black payments to, to mark their guys, and then when you can finally slam this guy on turn six or whatever, then it destroys all those guys. So mm-hmm. but it's the, the interesting thing about it is if you're doing that in like turns leading up to when you slam this guy. He your opponent's gonna know about it. So the creatures with prey counters on them now all of a sudden your opponent's gonna be aggressively trying to trade those off
0: mm-hmm.
1: before they die to this guy right So I think it plays out like pretty interestingly and there's like some some mind games that go on with uh, with this guy. And then the other way that I see this guy playing out is let's say you're in some sort of board stall and you're playing limited and you've got him as a bomb in your deck and you, like, top deck him on, like, turn 12 or whatever. Yeah. Then you, you can just, just like, one. pay a bunch of black, mark a bunch of their guys, slam him, kill a bunch of their guys, and probably just win from there. So I think that, like, having him in your opener and then, like, you know, slowly marking all their guys is something that might happen. But I think that's actually just, like, inherently less powerful than having him be, like, a, an excellent top deck late in the game of just, like, boom, draw this guy, show him to your opponent, mock all these guys, and then slam him. Right, um, but he but he's he, both.
0: He could, so so he gets value by being both of those things. So that's that's real. I think he's clearly just excellent and limited. I I will happily right.
1: first pick this guy all the time. Oh, for sure, absolutely, he's definitely a bomb. But maybe thinking about some like constructed implications or whatever. Um yeah. we'll see we'll see how he plays out most of the time. I just feel like you know I, I think he's clearly good. I just don't know how he's gonna play out a lot of the time or like what the best ways to use him is.
0: Yeah, and I think in a reasonable number of games, like he's just kind of worse than Noxious Gear Hulk, but you know that it may be that he's he's only worse by a little bit and not enough to actually affect him. If there's a, a time in the format that you actually want Noxious Gear Hulks in your deck, um, right? And then the times where he's really good, he's he can be way better than Noxious Gear Hulk. Um, it's also a really interesting design to make him like, a big guy that you can't really reanimate and get the full effect. So I, I, I think that's just a clever way to put together, you know, a dude that doesn't really work with uh, Liliana. Right,
1: yeah. He's he's definitely an, a cool, interesting mechanic that uh, we, we kind of haven't seen before.
0: Yeah, yeah, tough to evaluate. I do not like the design of this last card we've got spoiled.
1: <laughs>
0: just because it's... Uh, the
1: immortal sun. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Yeah, so essentially this is a six-mana artifact, legendary artifact. It says, it's got a a bunch of text that feels kind of all over the place, and I'm not really sure what's going on here. Yeah, no kidding. So, okay, it's got four lines of text. Text line one is, players can't activate loyalty abilities of Planeswalkers. Text line two, at the beginning of your draw step, draw an additional card. Okay, I'm not really seeing how these fit in at all, but here we go. Text line number three, spells you cast cost one less to cast. Cool. And text line number four is creatures you control get plus one plus one.
0: So it's it's an anthem, makes your spells cheaper, you draw an extra card a turn, and planes. nobody's planeswalkers work anymore. Just, so this
1: card is just what generic all of your the things that you want to do in magic are slightly better. <laughs> yeah, I guess. So. Except for except for planeswalkers. Uh, right. screw your opponent's planeswalkers. Right. Which is you know. So
0: as much as i like hate the design of this card i i think that there's a reasonable chance that this sees some play especially you know and this is a long way off so who knows but this is the kind of card that ends up being pretty good when formats get powered down you know this i don't think you're hard casting this that much right now although maybe could it's worth like refurbishing because what it does like the effect on the game is very powerful if you keep this in play out of a control deck, number one, it stops planeswalkers, which are one of the most powerful things people are trying to do against you. Um, and then you just draw an extra card a turn, and your stuff is cheaper, and your guys are bigger. And I don't know, it's probably a, a pretty decent effect on the game. That drawing an extra card a turn means that it's good in pretty much any deck that wants to use this as a weird win condition sort of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. To me, this just screams the definition of an EDH card. Yeah, um, it does. I feel like pretty much everybody playing EDH, as long as they can cast a six mana card, it, are gonna want this in their deck. Yeah, um, just because yeah, it does. It does like something for for everything. If you don't have a lot of planeswalkers in your deck, you're you're definitely gonna want this to just be able to like grind a bunch of people out and you know have incremental advantage across the board. But yeah, in, like in, in limited, I think that depending on how aggressive the format is, this can definitely take over games very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anthems in limited, I think, are generally pretty strong, and uh, drawing an extra card a turn. Like if if the games are ever going to go any any sort of grindy, then this card is just going to win you those pretty easily. Yeah, but this does not look like a card that I think is ever going to break into a constructed format outside of commander.
0: Yeah, I'm a little
1: higher on it for standard. I I think at some point... Okay.
0: I, I do think at some point it gets there. The combination of drawing cards and then those cards are cheaper to cast. I think there is some... You know, like Staff of Nin actually saw a little bit of standard play. And I think in the right control deck, this is significantly more powerful than Staff of Nin you're drawn that extra card, you can cast your spells a little bit cheaper, and then the sort of trinket text of their Planeswalkers don't work against you anymore. Um, you know, if we're in a format where you are a control deck, but you don't have access to Torrential Gearhulk anymore to punish Planeswalkers, this may be a way of immunizing yourself against them, and, and that's only like a secondary function of the card. Um, like, it does cost a lot of mana, but if people aren't abrading you, and this is the way you're getting ahead, I think it actually puts you ahead by a lot in not that long.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely fair, but, you know, you you did mention a card that, that probably is going to be yeah very, very effective against this one, which is a Braid. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, we, we do see Godfairous gifts decks trying to fight past a Braid a little bit, but you know, generally those decks play like for refurbished, where if you abrade it, then they can just like cast another one. Mm-hmm. This is this looks like a card that you're you're just not gonna have too many of in your deck. Yeah. And w- once it gets abraded, it's just gonna be gone.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is definitely a card that not certain that it's going to do anything for for sure. Like I, I wouldn't be surprised if nothing ever happens with it. But there's enough raw power here and potential that I'm willing to keep an eye on it as long as it's standard legal. I think
1: that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, and you never know, like, how often you want to have, like, one of these in your sideboard for whatever, like, super grindy matchup that you... Oh, for sure. Face. Like, you know, maybe one of these in the sideboard of a teamer deck is probably, like, you know, decent or whatever. Yeah. Just because uh, that probably breaks the mirror pretty wide open if it if it lives.
0: Yeah, makes sense. We'll see. I, I guess we'll just see. <laughs> yeah, that's that's all we can do. Definitely ready for a new set in the standard, but we got to wait a little bit. I guess we've got unstable coming first,
1: so have some fun yeah. with that, and then get back to work. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I'm definitely ready for for new new stuff to come out. It feels like uh, this current standard format has existed forever, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, which I think is just kind of the case for a lot of like winter formats or whatever. But yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready for some new stuff. Let's let's go. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Cool. Um, I think we talked about plenty for today. Uh, anything else you want to mention? Um, no, I think that that, that covers most, most of the things. I think next week is probably going to be a lot of t- conversation on what I've got planned for the Invitational the coming weekend. I should I should have a pretty pretty good idea of what's going on by then. Good.
0: Cool. Cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll try to drill down and get really specific down to like sideboard card number 15 or whatever if we can. <laughs>
1: sure. Yeah, I'm in for that.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Alright, as always, thanks so much to you guys for listening. Uh, This has been the MTG Grindcast. You can catch us online. The podcast Twitter is at MTG underscore Grindcast. Uh, You can also catch Collins at Collins Mullen. Yeah, say hi. Give us a tweet. Ask us some questions. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks a lot for listening, and have a great week. Bye-bye.